I'm Sean Delaney, and you're listening to What Got You There. What Got You There is a must-follow for entrepreneurs, creatives, high achievers, and change makers. Each week, I sit down with some of the world's most influential people and focus on the journey behind their success. We uncover the strategy, tactics, and routines that help them get there. Now it's your journey, so it's time to learn what's going to get you there. What got you there with Sean Delaney? Uh, what got you there with Sean Delaney? What got you there with Sean Delaney? Uh, what got you there? What got you? Got you? What got you there? Stephanie Mehta is the editor in chief at Fast Company. Her career so far has taken her from the Wall Street Journal to Fortune, Bloomberg, and Vanity Fair, where she was the deputy editor. Now she oversees Fast Company's editorial and design vision, with the aim of recognizing the human side of business. Whether she's investigating the prodigious rise of Silicon Valley, the domino effect of technology on our lives, or what makes a workplace truly innovative, Stephanie has her finger on the pulse. Enjoy this conversation that hits on ambition, bold thinking, culture, creativity, and so much more. Making change transpire. That's the mission behind the most amazing tasting protein bar brand taking the nutrition industry by storm. That brand... They're MCT Co., and they make the most delicious, keto-friendly, all-natural collagen protein bars. If you're obsessed with the quality of food going into your body like I am, then head out and pick up these amazing bars jammed with 10 grams of collagen protein. They only have two to three net carbs, no added sugar, and loaded with high-quality MCT oil for the healthy fats from coconuts. Whether you're busy running the kids around from activity to activity, a professional athlete, or just someone looking for a great tasting convenience snack, do yourself a favor, head to mctco.com and use code WGYT for 20% off your order. Stephanie, welcome to What Got You There. How are you doing today? I'm great, Sean. Thanks for having me. Yeah, very excited for this one. Something I've always been impressed with you, though, is how you handle yourself during interviews. So I'm just curious. Here we're about to sit down and start this interview. Is there anything you do just prior just to get ready and focused? I really like to speak to the people on a panel or in an interview before we do a live session in the green room and to keep the conversation really light, to not actually talk about what we're going to be talking about on stage. You don't want to have a conversation beforehand and then refer to the conversation while you're on stage when the audience doesn't know what the the whole backstory is. So I really like to use those opportunities before the interview, during the pre-interview process to just build a rapport and to get everybody comfortable. I think that usually uh, yields really terrific, more personal, more comfortable conversations. Yeah, making sure the person is comfortable provides unbelievable benefits. Is this the same when you're about to enter a meeting, though? Is there anything you do? I know you've been in some pretty powerful rooms just to get your mind right. Preparation, preparation, preparation. Um, I got my start as a business journalist when I was in my very early 20s, was fortunate enough to land at the Wall Street Journal when I was about 24. And as a woman, a woman of color, a woman who's young, a woman who presents young, I just felt like I had to overcompensate by being really knowledgeable about the material. I worry in retrospect that I perhaps tried to come, may have come across as a little bit of a know-it-all or tried to share how wise I was during those meetings. But I did find that the antidote for dealing with important, powerful people 
who might be inclined to, to be dismissive of somebody who was so junior to them was to just come in armed with a lot of information and to really know my stuff. A great piece of advice there. You mentioned your time at the Journal. What about before that? I, I know you weren't initially planning on doing this when you went to Northwestern. So how did those first few weeks there shape your career? I have a great story about becoming a, a journalist. I had started my undergraduate career with the expectation I was an English major. I thought I might go into book publishing or perhaps use that law degree, use that English degree to go to law school. And my second week at school, the woman who lived across the hall from me, who was also a freshman in my dorm, her name is Amy Vernon. She came back to the dorm with a copy of the Daily Northwestern, which was the daily college paper. And she had a front page story. And to me, it was a revelation. I had grown up in a household that read newspapers, but really didn't, I didn't know anything about the process of how they were made. I didn't write for my high school's newspaper. And to see that someone could walk into the paper one morning and emerge that evening with a front page story was just amazing to me, especially because my experience with writing had largely been term papers and long form kinds of things. So the fact that you could begin report and complete a project all within a matter of a couple of hours because everybody sort of showed up at the paper after classes was just, I, I loved the immediacy of it. And so I asked her if I could tag along with her and, and join the paper. And she was kind enough to indulge me. And um, I, I walked in with her, um, I don't know if it was the next day or a couple of days thereafter. And by that point, it was already a couple of months, a couple of weeks into the semester all of the assignments and the beats had been doled out. And what was left was, you know, sort of this new reporter's beat. And, and I sort of gravitated to a lot of stories inside the community and the, the, the business community, specifically in, in Evanston, which is the, the town in which Northwestern is, is based. And that was really how I got my start as a journalist and how I got my start um, interested in, in business journalism rather than sort of campus news and sports and all of the other things that um, were sort of considered plum beats for, for, for journalists at the time. You mentioned you were a few weeks behind when you first started with them. So how else did you go about differentiating yourself? I think part of it was just, you know, they, they were hungry for, for free help as is the case <laughs> of most newspapers. So I didn't distinguish myself too much, but I do think it was it was the willingness to take on the assignments that other people didn't didn't want. I was happy to generate my own story ideas. I was happy to take whatever assignments they had, but it was just I think a willingness to to be useful and and I think um, because I was not somebody who had done a lot of journalism before, had done any journalism journalism before. Again, there were a lot of young people, even freshmen, who had worked for their college, uh, their high school newspapers. Uh, Northwestern famously has this program for pre-college kids called the Cherub Program, which is run by the journalism school. So there were a lot of really aggressive young people who had gone through that program and, and knew how to write a story. I think for me, it was my sheer sense of wonder and my ability to want to be trained that so, so a couple of people on the paper took a real interest in me because I was so eager, and um, I'm really grateful to them for giving me that opportunity. Can you describe that eagerness? Because I think a lot of times people, when they're young, they're they're afraid of almost seeming too eager, like the, the little puppy that you're just trying to help. So, so how did you 
show enough eagerness, but also that you were going to create really good work at the same time? Yeah, I, I think, you know, and this probably is part of the reason that I was able to be successful as a journalist. It's it's really about asking questions. And it's not necessarily about asking a lot of questions, but it's about asking the right questions. And I probably had enough EQ at that time to sort of know what questions would turn on one boss versus what questions would turn on another one. And by boss, I mean sort of the, the student editors there who were a couple of years my senior. So, you know, with with one editor that was assigning, I would spend a little bit of time just trying to understand what are the questions that you really want me to have answered? What are the kinds of inquiries and paths you want me to go down to ensure that I get the information in my notebook that we're going to need to make sure that this is a, a successful project at the end of the day. With other editors, they, you know, they wanted you to be a little more self-directed. And so I think for me, a lot of those, a lot of the questions that I would ask of those people had more to do with the process and the logistics. You know, when do you need this filed? How many words do you need? Are you looking for something that's um, a little bit more of a straight news story, or are you looking for something that's got a little bit of writerly flair? So, you know, you sort of, as a young person, I think it's helpful to read the room, if you will. And if you're dealing with um, an editor who is inclined to be nurturing and is inclined to give you a little bit more time, I think it's, you know, really lean into that. Yeah, I have to imagine that EQ has been one of the key skills throughout your career, correct? I, I, I'd like to think it is. Um, it's, you know, it's one of those things that's a little hard to teach. But again, it kind of comes from that combination of asking the right questions. And I think the other side of the coin is, of course, just listening. Great points there. So after Northwestern, do you end up going to the Virginia Pilot first? So I did my undergraduate at Northwestern and got a um, undergraduate degree in uh, English there. And then I graduated in, I'm going to date myself, 1991, which was, um, for those of you who are old enough to remember, um, a, a year that the United States was in a pretty ser serious recession. Uh, nothing like the, the big global downturn we experienced in 2008, but the economy was not great. So I bought myself a little bit of time by um, getting a master's degree in journalism at Northwestern. So spent another year studying um, a combination of more traditional reporting. And then I was part of a, a program they had at the time called newspaper management. And it was sort of a, it was sort of business school meets journalism school for one quarter where we, we served as consultants to, um, to a newspaper in Indiana and really did everything from readership surveys to creating a marketing plan, all kinds of things to sort of really help us as students understand the, the ins and outs of, of that, that business. So I did that for a year, and then from there I went to do an, uh, a, a full-time reporting gig at the Virginian Pilot in Norfolk, Virginia. Oh, so is that year, is that what sparked your your interest in the business beat? No, I was actually covering business at the, the school paper. So I had been interested, again, you know, going back to what we had talked about earlier, you know, just trying to make myself useful in a part of the organization where there wasn't already somebody interested in doing that work. So I think around my sophomore year, I started covering local businesses for the paper. Uh, we had an editor there. Uh, his name was Ricky Young. 
he liked to brand the Daily Northwestern as Evanston's only daily newspaper. The city of Evanston only had a weekly and you know this campus paper came out every day. And so he wanted to treat the paper like any other daily paper, including coverage of city hall and the local business community. And no one wanted that beat. So I, um, I scooped it up and, and really sort of fell in love with the idea of writing business. So you mentioned scooping it up, which brings me to the next thing I'd love to hear your perspective on. And I'm really intrigued about how people go from kind of those smaller situations to making those big leaps in their career. And I take it you're one of those people that just doesn't sit back and let things happen. You kind of go out there and make things happen. So then how did you get in with the Wall Street Journal? A lot of my peers at the time were following a similar strategy. So I'm certainly not alone in my approach. But you know, if you had aspirations to work for a bigger publication, first of all, the, the paper I went to go work for, the Virginian Pilot, had a long and rich history of being a sort of farm team for bigger papers. And so traditionally, young people would come to the Virginian Pilot and work there for two or three years. And all along, they might be sending their clips and their resumes to the Philadelphia Inquirer or the Dallas Morning News or um, the Cleveland Plain Dealer. There were these sort of bigger market papers that young people who were working at smaller papers like the Virginian Pilot or the paper in Newport News, which was sort of right across the river. You're kind of always sending out your stuff, so to speak. And so almost from the minute I got to the Virginian Pilot, there was a sort of tacit understanding with the editors and the management that some of the young people who came there would just move on. And so I began sending out my clips to all of those publications I mentioned and more, the Los Angeles Times and the Washington Post, which was you know three hours to the north. And what my stroke of luck ended up being was that in, I want to say, 1993, the Asian American Journalists Association, which is a trade organization that represents journalists of Asian descent, had their they have an annual conference. And I went to this annual conference in Los Angeles. I was able to crash with a, a college friend who was living there at the time. And they have a job fair. And I was so busy with work that I missed the signups for interviews at the job fair with the Wall Street Journal. They had run out of all the slots by the time I got around to reaching out. But the uh, kindly recruiter took pity on me and said, well, why don't we have breakfast instead? So instead of a 20-minute time slot at the job fair with 20 other super qualified journalists queued up behind me, this recruiter said, let's, let's have a meal. And we ended up having um, breakfast in the hotel where the convention was taking place. And he was very blunt. He said, your clips are, your clips meaning your your." newspaper clippings, your your body of work, it's better than about 90% of what I see. But that other 10% is really good. So, you know, you're not competing with the sort of base of the pyramid. You are competing with the top of the pyramid. And if you want to get to the Wall Street Journal, you need to start thinking about being excellent, not just being good and not just sort of rising to the top of, of your peer group. You're you're competing with people who have a lot more experience than you who really want these jobs. And so that was a real eye-opener for me. And I think that's something that has always stuck with me. And it's a really great lesson for early career folks to remember that, you know, at a certain point, you're no longer competing with your other peers, the kids that you went to college with. 
for the really plum jobs, you're competing against people who sometimes have 10, 15, maybe 20 years experience. And you've got to comport yourself and compete with yourself in, in that way. Yeah, that realistic feedback is so crucial. How did your approach change after receiving that feedback? I think my approach changed in two ways. The other piece of feedback that this recruiter gave me, which was incredibly valuable, was he said, you know, again, this was this was a, a, a different time. This was before we had hyperlinks to our homepages with all our stories. We were literally photocopying our stories and, and sending cover letters. And he said, don't wait until the six-month mark to reach out to me. When you have a story that you're really proud of or a couple of stories that you're really proud of, send them to me, put a post-it note on it showing me what your process was like or, or highlighting the things that were really groundbreaking because, you know, again, a national recruiter at a big national publication is not going to necessarily know the nuances or um, the context of some of these local stories. And so I, that was one thing I did. I took his advice I, and I, I started sending him um, my, my work more regularly. I got quite lucky in that my area of coverage in my early career at the Virginia Pilot was real estate, uh, both commercial and residential. And, you know, in a, a smaller market like Norfolk, Virginia, that can be a pretty sleepy beat. That's, again, there were much more um, exciting things to write about. Um, Norfolk is a, a military town. The country's largest naval base is there. And so, you know, people were military contracting was a really hot beat. Banking was a really hot beat. Again, Virginia in, in the early 90s, there were a lot of national banks headquartered in Virginia. So I was writing about something that was a little bit dry, but there were a couple of really fun stories that emerged on my beat. One of the biggest employers was a real estate company. It, um, it agreed to sell to a bigger conglomerate. And so I was able to unpack what had really happened there and, and tell a narrative that was um, a little contrary to the press release. Another big unfinished building had been sold to a somewhat controversial um, buyer. Again, someone with a more national profile. It wasn't a, a local so trying to apply sort of national storytelling techniques to these local stories, I think I had the recruiter's words ringing in my ear um, when I started to think more ambitiously about some of these stories that might have just been, you know, sort of quick news hits. You've mentioned multiple times about the ability to receive feedback. How else throughout your career have you just done a good job receiving those feedback loops that you continue to evolve with? Uh, I mean, I'm just a... a, a a vacuum when it comes to pieces of information, but also if if the information is communicated in a way that is memorable and there's something sort of almost tactile about that information. You know, I had a great editor when I was at the Wall Street Journal. Uh, his name is Dennis Neal, and he used to always talk about keeping related material together. And anybody who's listening who's a writer knows immediately what I'm talking about. You know, you try to bundle the material that is in the same sort of bucket or category. You put it together. But he uh, he would constantly say, keep related material together. And I, I, I still, I, I repeat that to my writers all the time now. I think there's a... A, a magic to um, information that is communicated simplicit, simply and um, repeated often. So that certainly helps me to absorb and retain um, feedback. You know, the, the little piece of information 
conversation about sticking a post-it note on a piece of paper and explaining the context of a story. That was so visual and it was something that I could imagine myself doing as the feedback was coming. So I think that's another way that feedback sort of sticks with me if, if it feels like there's a something I can picture in my mind's eye. Um, so those are two things that kind of come to mind for me when it comes to absorbing and, and retaining information. Yeah, so you mentioned when you were constructing those real estate uh articles, just the narrative you were creating and you thought you had an interesting approach. So I'm wondering when you're thinking through a story or even a new layout of a, of a magazine, are you shaping that in your head first? Are you a real visual person? How does that play out for you? I, I think it's a combination of things. I mean, I'm very fortunate here at Fast Company. Um, I have a great creative director. His name is Michael Schneid, and he's somebody who does a very good job of taking our descriptions of projects long before we sort of know what they're going to look like and what they're going to sort of, um, how they're going to come to life and starting to sort of storyboard those and to do rough, you know, sort of sketches of, of what those things can look like. So for me, I'm, I'm not a visual person. Um, my sketches are often stick people. <laughs> they're not <laughs> very um, beautiful I'm, I'm more of a verbal person than a visual person, but I'm lucky that I have a partner who is a really visual person. And, and so it's through a lot of dialogue and a lot of communication that we're able to get to that place. I mean, like any editor, um, I have tastes and preferences. I tend to, again, another clever phrase that I learned from an, an, a former editor, uh, John Huey, who used to be the editor-in-chief of Time, Inc., used to say clear is the new clever. And that's another catchphrase that has stuck with me. Whenever we're looking at layouts and designs, I'm always going to urge the designers and the editors to design and write in a way that's clear. We're in a period of time as a media company where you know our readers are really time starved. They have lots of choices about where to spend their time I don't want to make it hard for them to um, enjoy Fast Company. Is that the biggest issue you guys are struggling with right now? Just there's so much out there for your viewers to consume? It's a combination of things. Uh, part of it is capturing attention. Part of it is the way that people consume information has changed dramatically. People don't go to media companies' homepages very much anymore. I think if you're a Wall Street Journal um, or a New York Times, you, you're in a different position. That, that is a, a first read for many people. And so they will go to the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times or the Washington Post homepage. You know, I'm, I'm very realistic about how people find our content. They usually come to us through social. They come to us through our newsletter. We do have super fans who, who seek us out. They'll seek out particular parts of Fast Company. We have outstanding journalists um, throughout all of our editorial channels. So um, our design content, for example, is is really outstanding in the design community, as well as people who are really interested in learning about design will, will, will look for that information proactively. But the changing nature of the way media is consumed, um, you know, forces us to find new ways to make sure that we're capturing people's attention and then figuring out how we can get them to stay. Is that one of the most exciting elements of your job? 
it's it's hard to point to just one. <laughs> we have uh, it, it. Every day is different um, at a place like Fast Company, and and that's actually what is most exciting about the job. Um, there is no routine. My calendar looks different every day. I get to do really great things like talk to you. So that is a fun part of the job. I get to be an ambassador for this amazing brand that uh, was started 25 years ago and uh, luckily continues to be relevant to readers. The challenge of trying to make sure that we have a distinct voice in an increasingly crowded media landscape is, uh, is is probably the most exciting part of the job, particularly because, and I say this with great humility, because uh, so much of the work um, at Fast Company was done by my predecessors. The business conversation really has moved in the direction that Fast Company sort of squarely lives in. So, you know, I'll, I mentioned design earlier. Fast Company has been writing about the business of design and the importance of design to business for almost 25 years, since almost its inception. And now you can't go anywhere without someone wanting to have a conversation about design thinking and the role of design in in business. And, and of course, that was always the case for design forward companies and company, you know, the auto manufacturers and to a certain extent, the, you know, the apples of the world. But when you're having um you know, software companies talk to you about the role of design um, and the role of user interface and the role of user, um, you know, experience. That's that's really rewarding um, for a, a publication like Fast Company because we've been we, we've been singing that chorus for a really long time. The rest of the not only the business world but business publications are now sort of saying, yeah, we've we've got to figure out our our design. Uh, coverage and and the way we're going to write about design. So for me, it's exciting because we were there early. Now we just have to figure out how do we maintain our lead and how do we continue to write about these things in a way that feels um, current, dutiful, not dutiful, um, you know, of the moment. That that that's the kind of stuff that that energizes me. Yeah, what I love about Fast Company and a reason I've been a reader for a while now is you guys are almost at that culmination of business, innovation, creativity. So I'm wondering just now working there, how important is having that creative side in any business you're in? It's critical. And we talk about creativity a bunch of different ways at at Fast Company. I think when we first started our annual most creative people in business list, the, the first list was really heavy on people who were quote unquote creatives. So the, the Johnny Ives, the former um, chief designer at Apple, you know, those were the kinds of people we were highlighting. They were people who were very much creative. We've since evolved the conversation to include people who are creatives inside big organizations, but we've also talked about the importance of creativity in jobs that are not traditionally creative. So, um, you know, if you're a, a a NASA scientist, you have to apply creativity to your job. If you are a manufacturer of um, mattresses, how do you apply creativity to that job? You know, we we think of creativity sort of with a capital C, and I think that means any job can can require a greater degree of creativity. And I think that just becomes much more important as automation and artificial intelligence start to become more pervasive in organizations. The most compelling thing that anyone can do to 
sort of maintain their job in a world of automation is to be able to do the kinds of stuff that, that computers and robots can't do. No, that's such a great point there. And I'm wondering who you've looked to. They could be companies, they could be people for your own creative inspiration. Um, wow, that's a, a great question. There are so many companies that I think of as as, as companies I admire for, for creativity. I'm going to give it some thought because I don't want to play favorites and I don't want to get in trouble with any of the companies we write about. It's hard to argue with a company like Disney in terms of its ability to continue to find ways to be creative whilst also you know, running a, a, a massively successful media enterprise. And I, I think that you look at the success, not only of the big tentpole movies and the big franchises, but you know something like The Mandalorian, which everyone is talking about right now, there's a sophistication, but also a playfulness that comes from some of that. And I would point to that as a really good example of creativity marrying commerce in ways that, you know, just end up delighting the audience. On a smaller scale, um, although not a small scale, uh, we had the opportunity to spend some time um, this year with Gucci, the Italian luxury brand, and to see the risks that that company has taken in design, in marketing, but also some of the humility that the leadership team has communicated in the wake of you know, particularly challenging um, marketing issue they had around a, a sweater, a, a, a turtleneck sweater. It was interesting to see not only the role that creativity has played in the evolution of that brand, but the way that the company applied a creative solution to making sure that they um, showed humility in the face of, of a potential potential controversy. Two words that stood out there for me were humility and risk. And, and I'm hoping you can hit on those two words with your own career. Uh, I, I've read that at times you think it isn't so bad to take a lateral step in your career because you understand that long-term mindset. So I'm, I'm just wondering how you've married humility and risk throughout your career. I've always tried to as a personal philosophy, be mindful of the fact that luck plays a huge role in um, in my career trajectory. Um, I'm certainly not the smartest person in the room. I'm certainly not even the hardest working person in the room. Um, I've been amazed over and over again by how talented, intelligent, and hardworking the people are that I've had the great privilege to work with. Uh, so I know that luck has always played a role in my ability to get that next job. I, I think about that recruiter who had breakfast with me because I was too um, boneheaded to be able to sign up for a, a, an interview spot in time. I mean, that stroke of luck really probably changed the course of my career. Um, so for me, you know, if, if you if you realize what a privilege it is to be able to do what I get to do every day, um, it's really easy to to have that sense of humility and and to really be appreciative each and every day. So that's I, I think that that has always driven 
the way I approach my work. Um, in terms of risk, you know, it, it's all about calculated risks. Um, I'm, again, conscious of the fact that I'm not just taking a risk on my behalf. I'm, I'm also, uh, I have a, a staff that is, uh, whose, whose fortunes can rise and fall based on some of the decisions we make. So I'm always conscious of the fact that whatever we do needs to feel like it has the greater good in mind. And we try to be really inclusive here at Fast Company. You know, everyone has a chance to, to, to share what they're thinking about decisions. And, you know, I, I don't just sort of put people on the cover. These are parts of, of collaborative conversations with, um, with, with a large number of people on, on the staff. Um, so for me, risk is always, I think, I guess it would be fair to say that there's a, I, I even bring humility to the process of, of taking risks because I'm, I'm aware that, that it's not just about me. So then what was the narrative like early on in your career when you were first getting started? Did you ever imagine you'd be where you're at now? No, I sort of figured that I wasn't much of a super long-term planner early on. I really was just thinking you know, again, is that when I was writing my real estate stories in Virginia, I sort of figured that um, my goal was to get to the Wall Street Journal and I would stay there the rest of my life and, you know, didn't really even know what the range of opportunities for jobs within the Wall Street Journal would be. At one point, I thought I would write books. Um, at one point, I thought I might you know, do an, in an international stint neither of which has happened um, somewhat to my chagrin, because I think those are both things I would still love to do. So for me, um, you know, early on, I think that my my goal was always to just sort of get to a big national newspaper. And um, I, I wasn't really thinking about what um, what my career in my, my 40s and 50s would look like. Yeah, you mentioned the goal of getting to the Wall Street Journal. So then I'm intrigued. What do you view as some of those harder decisions you've made within your career uh, of switching to a different role, going to a new company? Any that come to mind for you? Yeah, I mean, as I said, I, I really, when I first got to the Journal, I would hear about people who were leaving and I would think, why would anybody ever leave this place? It's a dream job. And, and it was really hard for me to leave. And I remember having a very hard conversation with the then editor, um, Paul Steiger, who went on to start ProPublica um, about what I would be leaving behind. For me, the decision to leave the Journal, and this would have been 2000, um, I had been a beat reporter at the Journal for, I, I'd been there for six years. I had been covering tech and telecom for almost three years. And I felt like I had learned how to become a really good reporter. When you're a reporter at the Journal, and particularly back then when the staffing was such that you might have one person just covering one company, I, I just felt like I had learned a lot about how to how to be a good reporter because of the way that the newspaper was um, put together back then and the way that it was structured. And again, in that sort of clear as the new clever, it was written for that busy Wall Street trader, uh, corporate executive who was looking for information quickly. And there were plenty of opportunities to write features, but doing a daily beat, it was very hard to break away to learn how to, to do long form um, magazine style writing. This was before they had a magazine and before they had the weekend journal. So for me, uh, the only way I 
felt to that I would learn how to become a magazine writer was to go and become a magazine writer. And so when Fortune magazine came knocking and said they were looking for somebody to to help with their tech coverage, um, it just felt like the right way to get a skill that I wasn't able to to get in my current role. Um, and as you pointed out in one of your earlier questions, it, it was a lateral move. Um, they were offering me a writer role. Um, I kind of felt I could go in at the senior writer level, but both sides sort of wanted to test the waters a little bit. So I sort of said, you know what, I'll, I'll, I'll come in at this level. Um, I'll work my butt off and prove to you that I, I should be promoted. And, uh, and I was within a year and, um, it was largely on the strength of, you know, being able to do what I did really well at that time, which was I had the relationships, I had the reporting, um, and I did get the opportunity to work really closely with a couple of editors who you know, really taught me what it was to, to write a, a magazine article. Um, I remember my first big assignment when I got there, um, again, this is, you have to, for, for some of your older readers, they will remember what the year 2000 was like. You know, the mag magazines were just, they were like um, phone books. They were so thick. And I remember pitching a story and saying, I think, you know, I could probably do this in about 2,000 words. I think that was the longest length story I had ever written um, at that point. And they basically said, well, can you double that? You know, there was so much of a demand for, for word count. Um so I kind of got thrown in feet first and, um, and it was great, was grateful for the opportunity to learn something new. And so for me, it was like, you know, the, the title was less important than the opportunity and the quality of the editors I would get to work with. Is that one of the major frameworks you use when you feel like you're really excelling at a certain skill? Do you look for the next thing in your career in terms of growth? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, I, you, you don't go into journalism to, to get rich. I think a lot of us go into journalism because we were really great students and we love learning and we love sort of the exercise of um, interrogation and exploration and, and finding the next thing. And so for me, um, it really was always about like, what can I learn that I'm not able to do now? Um, or what platform will give me um, a new opportunity to try something different or to stretch a different skill. What's something I haven't done before? It sounds like the the curious nature you possess has been so important. Do you view yourself as a really curious person naturally? I do. I feel like um, there are days I wish I had more time to indulge in the, the curiosity piece and and didn't have to spend so much time sort of on the day to day, but I think that's also just the nature of, um, of, of work these days is, you know, people do have to carve out time to, to think. And I know that that's, that's terrible, but, um, I'm, I'm always envious when I read about, um, or hear about Bill Gates and how he's able to go to one of his cabins and just read for a week. It, it just, that feels like heaven to me. <laughs> the, the famous Bill Gates think week. What about if you actually do have some free time? Is there anything you do enjoy reading? Um, I love fiction. Um, I really try to read things that take me to a different world, but where, you know, the narrative and the plot structure and the, the character development, you know, is something that you can get really lost in. 
So you mentioned that character development, and I'm wondering how this ties in to the character development within the culture at Fast Company. And, and we were talking a few minutes ago about creativity. What are you doing to help foster that creative element in the culture there? You know, I, th- I think one of the things that we, one of the words I try to use a lot in conversations with editors in particular is ambition. Um, I, I would really love for our writers and reporters and editors to think ambitiously. And, you know, I'm very fortunate that everybody here is um, very mature. The young writers are mature beyond their years. Uh, So they understand that they have, especially on the digital side, certain things that we need to get out the door. And there are um, stories that we need to write on a daily basis to keep the site running. But I hope that people recognize that there's a that 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 I want to give them opportunities to try ambitious stories, ambitious storytelling approaches, um, strive for bigger and better projects, knowing that you know some of these things won't come to fruition, that we can try and we may not um, be successful. But uh, I think by using the word ambition a lot, um, I hope that we're trying to communicate that sense that people can be creative. They can strive for things. Um, again, in that category of feedback that I've, I've heard and absorbed, um, I've often have had editors say, go nuts, go try the, a new style of writing, create something that is outside your comfort zone. And if it doesn't work, we can always pull it back. You know, you can try something that's really outlandish or ambitious or that feels maybe not something like something you would typically read in a fast company. And if it doesn't work, there's no penalty to it. We know that we can do the sort of more safe, more traditional approach. Um, But why not have fun and experiment a little bit while we're still in the draft phase? Yeah, I absolutely love that approach, Stephanie. And ambition, bold, big thinking is something that seems to be a reoccurring theme on this show. Uh, I'm also curious how that just ties in. Obviously, you guys understand the importance of this ambitious thinking, but you also have a really good pulse on just the the general zeitgeist out there. How do you guys do such a good job keeping a, a handle on that overall pulse? Um, you know, again, it, we're so lucky to have an incredibly um, – good team of writers and reporters who are, you know, out there meeting with founders and executives and business leaders, but also people who are um, academics and researchers who, luckily for us, they they will come to us often when they have um, interesting things to talk about. And so we try to get out of the office as much as possible or have people come to the office more often than not. We have a really nice view. Um, and it's just, it's, it's having lots and lots and lots of conversations. And I think, you know, two things happen. One, when you start to hear s- similar things from diverse groups of people, uh, it makes you realize that something is in the zeitgeist, something is happening out there. Um, and the other thing is our writers and, and editors have a really good antenna for what's news, but also for what's just sort of slideware and what's sort of feels a little bit like a bit of marketing speak versus, you know, something that's truly transformational or innovative. Yeah, I know this isn't one of your main focuses as editor-in-chief, but what are some of those big patterns you're seeing, just interesting trends we should be keeping an eye on moving forward as we enter 2020? There's no question that the conversation about climate 
is going to continue to be one that is really robust and and hopefully the role of young people like Greta Thunberg has really thrust this conversation front and center. I think for for many parts of the population, it's always been um, a, a topic A, but climate and particularly from our point of view, um, solutions will be a really important conversation in, in 2020. You know, we see that, um, you know, there's no shortage of stories that we can write any day of the week on the, the sort of horrific doom and gloom aspects of, of climate change. Um, uh, my my sense is that what readers really want is a better sense of how they can make a difference and and how um, we can actually um, as as individuals but also as communities be more proactive. That's something I'm certainly looking forward to keep my eye on reading in some upcoming issues. You ready for a few quick hit questions as we wrap up here? Sure. So, what's the most exciting issue you come out with? For me, it's our most innovative companies issue, which we're actually working on now. It's um, our 2020 list will be in our March-April issue, and um, I, I, that's that's our that's our Super Bowl or our Oscars, depending on how you want to look at it. No, absolutely, an issue I look forward to every single year. What about looking at the past, the entire entirety of your entire career? Is there been a profile or a story that you look back on and just has most stuck with you? You know, more recently, I'm really proud of the work we did in our November issue. We had Yvonne Chouinard from um, Patagonia on our cover, and it was really a look at reinventing capitalism. And I think for a business publication to say, you know, the, the, the system that we all rely on, the system that we write about day in and day out is in need of dramatic rethinking. Um, it, it, it felt like a bold statement, but as I said, what we tried to do was focus not on the problems and the inequities, but who are the people and the thinkers who are putting forth real solutions for how we can make sure that capitalism works for everybody. The theme of ambition coming out there. Hopefully. You know, uh, we'll, we'll, we're, I'm eager to see if others who have really good solutions kind of come out of the woodwork and, and that it becomes part of a, a bigger business conversation. You know, a lot of people um, watched what the Business Roundtable, which is the big national um, organization representing some of um, the biggest companies in the world, you know, they came forth with a statement around sort of the end of shareholder primacy and trying to take a more holistic look at um, the role of, of business in society. I think everyone is waiting to see what that looks like in practice. And I'm hopeful that some of the ideas we put forth might actually gain some traction with with big companies. Awesome. So this has been a question I've been dying to ask you. So someone no longer living, if you guys were going to do a huge feature on them, who would you want to do? Oh, wow. Um, That's a great question. I haven't really thought about it. I mean, for me, I think, would be fascinating in this day and age to be able to talk to somebody like Winston Churchill about what he thinks about Brexit, what he thinks about the rise of authoritarian regimes, what he thinks about the ways that you know business and society have 
um, have evolved since his time as as prime minister. I mean, I'm just sort of fascinated by Churchill as a figure, um, and I imagine he'd have a lot to say about all of the above. <laughs> oh, I, I would love to be a fly on the wall during that conversation. So last one here. Is there anything you wish you had spent more time on when you were younger? Everything. My kids are going <laughs> to my kids are going to kill me if I say this because I tell them this all the time. I always say, you know, nobody ever says I'm really glad my parents let me quit piano. Um, I actually played piano all through high school, but I wish I had I wish I had really mastered it um, because now as an adult, um, I sit down to play and I can, you know, plonk out a few things. But I find it very relaxing and I find it um really enriching. I, I wish I had I wish I had practiced more. Like I said, my kids are gonna kill me. <laughs> no, I love hearing these answers. That's so interesting. It's something I never knew about you. But Stephanie, this has been a truly an honor for me, a really fascinating conversation. Where else do you want the listeners staying connected with you and what you guys are doing at Fast Company? You can visit us at www.fastcompany.com. We are a 24-7 news site. Please check out our coverage on design, creativity, technology, work life, social impact, and news. Um, And we love reader feedback and we love listener feedback. So if anybody has any thoughts on anything they've heard or anything they've read, um, you can always uh, DM me at, at Stephanie Meta on Twitter. Well, everything you guys do really is the culmination of what we try to accomplish here on the podcast. So thanks so much for joining us on What Got You There. Thanks so much, Sean. You guys made it to the end of another episode of What Got You There. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.